This is Residents in a Room, an official podcast of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, where we go behind the scenes to explore the world from the point of view of anesthesiology residents. You know, living like a resident for a few years even after you start making more money. Everything we do, we undo later. If you can't fund your practice or profit from it in any way, then you're not even going to be able to provide that patient care. Hi, I'm Rajiv Saxena, a CA2 at the University of Washington, and I'll be your host for today's episode of Residents in a Room, the ASA's podcast by residents for residents. So let's go ahead and meet our fellow residents. Daniel Bingham, CA2 from the University of Arkansas. Tristan Steinberger, CA2 from Las Vegas. Hi, Nilab Yakubi, CA2 from New Orleans. I'm Candace Olson, a CA2 from Baylor Scott & White. Jordan Hill, CA3 from Iowa. So in this episode, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, money, 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 money. So <laughs> let's start with, are you clear on how uh, payment and reimbursement works? I think it's ever really changing anyway. I don't think anyone can be 100% on that topic, but I definitely do not know yeah. as much as I'd like to know. I don't think anyone really ever feels like an expert on this, but let's talk about what we do know about how anesthesiologists get paid. My knowledge is just barely scratching, you know, the basic, the bottom of the barrel for the basics, but from what I understand, you know, you get paid a, a base unit per procedure. So if you're, you know, doing a lap coli, then you get paid a certain number of base units for that. And then you add on however much time that you spent doing the case. So you get paid, you know, let's say seven base units for a lap coli, and then you get paid in 15-minute increments for your time. So if it was a 30-minute lap coli, which never happens, then you would get two base units for time. That gets you up to nine base units. So, and then I think it's at that point you get you have a conversion factor, whether you're getting paid from a private insurance company or from Medicare or Medicaid. I know that the ASA sends out a survey every year kind of looking at what the average conversion factor is, and I think it's about $70 uh, per unit. So you're looking at nine times 70 there for what you would get paid for that lap coli if you're going private insurance. Daniel, you highlighted in a, a really clean kind of summary of, of the basics. Are there other aspects to how we get paid that you think about or you know? Like with most questions that were asked, the answer kind of, it depends. And so there's a lot of things that factor into how we get paid. You mentioned like the conversion factors, the, the base units and the time units, but that varies geographically and also with the payers. So you could have the um, CMS or even commercial contractors who are negotiating what uh, that conversion factor is. Um, to back up a little bit, um, as far as base units, you know, it's determined by the surgical procedure, but it also, um, that value um, is related to the complexity, you know, the pre-op evaluation, just learning different things that can add to the complexity of a, of a procedure that makes the base value go up or down as well. We talked about you know, base units and time units, which is a really key distinction right, for our field as being very different than kind of billing per CPT codes. Um, what, is, what are your understanding of how that translates to the number one question, you're going to get a job, how do you get paid? There are multiple ways to actually take home money. What is your understanding of that, the difference between how you bill and sort of what you as an individual or a practice you know, make? 
That depends as well. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends on kind of the practice you have set up um, and, you know, potentially if you've negotiated in your contract to have a base salary, then what you make is that, you know, you may have incentives for um, value outside of that if you make have more RVUs or, or par se. So it really depends on your contract, the, the practice that um, you've joined. Candice, your point is really valid. It, it really does depend on the practice, and there's many ways to do that. So I tend to think about it in terms of um, kind of extremes. So on one extreme is kind of the hunter model, which is what people call, you know, eat what you kill, for better or for worse, where it's essentially, you know, the units that you bring in the revenue that you generate from that is is the salary you make. That still depends on your payer mix. It's still, you know, your charges are not the same as your revenues, right? And so that may vary, but in general, it's like a pure productivity model. Um, and then, you know, there's blended units where you take the whole group's revenue divided by all of the total units, and it's a kind of a blended unit. And so some, you know, we're talking about incentives and behavior. Right? You can imagine how the incentives may be a little bit different if, if it's purely what you do is what you make. Right? And so a blended unit maybe moves away from that a little bit um, to sort of a, a dollar per hour or like, you know, kind of model versus a pure salary. And so I guess there's a lot of nuances here um, to think about. One really important thing that, you know, a lot of us probably are wondering is, do they pay you for that extra A-line you put in or for that extra epidural you put in? Um, because if they're not paying you for it, then you're probably not going to do it. So I think a lot of us wonder, how can we do what's best for the patient but still do it or bill it in a way that we can still be compensated for it? Daniel, I think you kind of hit the elephant in the room, right? Which is, while we are all physicians and we went in to do the best for our patients, we are still humans, right? And we're influenced by incentives. And so, I mean, there's a lot of data to support what you just said. If you don't make money from an A-line, lo and behold, your practice may not do as many A-lines. It's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a scary thought, but, but, but it is true. Um, so, you know, I guess I'm going around in our group here. I mean, when you hear about these different ways in which you get paid, how do you evaluate practices? Like, how important is it to you how you get paid? I think it depends what you want, what what your lifestyle, what your personal goals are. Um, if you want to make more money with private practice, you can pick up extra hours. If you want a more scheduled lifestyle, you can be in a larger group and take less call. In your academics, you can go to the VA, uh, where the hours are <coughs> probably the best. I think it's a hard question to answer just because it depends on the individual. Yeah, I think uh, I think as I think about this whole transition of money, it just seems almost mind-boggling confusing in terms of I do something for a patient and the number of steps that has to occur in order for someone to then put a charge through and then the steps that have to occur for then someone to pay and that money make it back to me is really convoluted. But I think the take-home point for me when I look at all of this is just that a lot of it is not in our control and so because of that i think it's extra important like tristan was just saying to know what you're looking for in a practice and being very vigilant about understanding how your practice works or how the practice you're interested in works uh, like was mentioned earlier the conversion factors can change based on geography and whether it's government or private practice private insurance can change that also so again i think 
being residents in medicine, we love big picture sort of concepts that we can apply to every situation. And I think it's just more of a situation where when you're looking for a job and you're looking at those practices, you really need to dig down and figure out what it is you're looking at and how they're making their revenue and distributing it. Jordan, you went right into my next question, which is how do you actually find out, find this information out? Where do you guys go to when you're trying to find out about how a practice reimburses their physicians? To figure out that, you have to talk to people in the group. I mean, it's going to be hard to figure out how the group pays. Or uh, I've heard from multiple sources. If you want to know how it works, when you interview, you you go over and you talk to the partners. You talk to people there. How? What's the group? What's the practice like? What's the call like? What's the payment like? You have to talk. And so I think there's really a few ways to do that and to talk to them. I think too, and this goes a little bit more big picture, but in addition to talking with the practice that you're interested in terms of how they distribute their revenue, I think it's also important that we're all paying attention to the bigger landscape, including the sort of bills that happen and can go through that can change how um, that revenue is generated and understanding how the big picture changes affect our specialty individually. Those changes are then going to affect each practice in sort of a unique way because those conversion factors can be different and that ratio of government to private insurance can be different. So understanding how these big picture changes to healthcare affect us as a specialty and then affect practices individually, I think is one of the big challenges, but is just another reason that we need to be paying attention to what's going on uh, in the big picture. I think that's a really important point. I mean, I think is very well articulated in our group here. I mean, you have to start by understanding the basics of time units and base units and conversion factors and pair mix. Not even the specific numbers, but just how that works. And you do have to talk to people in the group. As you can understand, part of the reason it is so convoluted is because this is very valuable information, right? No private practice wants to tell a resident and have that resident tell every single person in their program what their blended unit cost is, right? There's a certain level of trust required here because if you do that, you're potentially jeopardizing the reputation of the people in that practice who are in competition with alternative employers for you. So it's just something to think about when you think about the larger system as us as residents, we kind of want to know all the information. But by nature, it really has to probably happen at an individual level with, with understanding the people. And then on top of that, you have the broader system sort of changes too. I know some of us here in this group you know, are likely to go into academia, and a large number of our listeners around the country are going to go into academic medicine. So one thing I've heard people you know, say sometimes is, I don't want to deal with all this business stuff. I just want to avoid it. And sometimes they'll say, I want to go into academic medicine. So I have a question. Do you think this is important for people going into academia to know about you know, in terms of how you get paid? Or do you think this is really kind of more of an issue for the private practice world? I think in general most people probably see it more importantly for private practice, but I, I think it can be really important in academia. I mean, if, if you're not, if you don't understand how the system works, then you're not really able to advocate for your department and your specialty in the healthcare system or the hospital as a whole. Yeah, I, th I think it's important even if you're in academics because it'll just make your organization more efficient if you're aware of billing and where you, where you could be more efficient. Well, I think it's also interesting because we in this group are 
around the country, right? And you hear the easiest number is, what's your salary, right? That's the easiest number to grasp on, upon. It's not paramix, it's not conversion ratio, it's not dollar per hour, it's what's your take home pay, even though that number may not reflect things like benefits or flexibility and things like that. And so I personally think, you know, you actually, by understanding what your academic institution, how they pay staff, it actually tells you a lot about the incentives and the culture and you also know how to evaluate jobs outside of academia by, by having that comparison. So I, I agree, Tristan. I mean, I think that it is really important. Um, at what point do you guys think it is important to start asking these questions in your residency? As early as possible, then you get more exposure. Well, I do agree that as a CA1, I, I would just focus on anesthesia. And as you become more confident, you look for more opportunities in the non-clinical aspects. But I think ultimately you have to be solid clinically first. Yeah, I think especially uh, as you get into the point where you're going to be interviewing with practices, and especially if you're looking at private practices, I think if you can go to an interview and talk intelligently about how they generate their revenue, and understand when they lay down sort of how that revenue is uh, distributed through the practice. Just from the standpoint of being able to get an offer from that practice, I think they're going to see you as someone who's going to be an asset to them uh, versus if you go in and they start talking to you about uh, these specifics and it looks like the first time you've ever heard these terms thrown across, you know, that's not going to be in your best interest. So. I think, uh, like you're saying, clinical expertise is the priority, but hopefully by the time you're getting to your CA3 year and you're looking at applying to practices, you're going to be in a spot where you can talk intelligently about some of these concepts. Yeah. And I think one other thing about that is understanding how practices make money actually tells you a lot about different types of opportunities there are. Uh, for example, you know, a lot of us have an interest in um, maybe broader medicine, whether it be entrepreneurship or starting a practice or maybe running a department one day um, in all sorts of different settings. And, you know, if you go into a place where everyone is paid purely on production, there are places like this that have rotating CEOs or rotating, you know, directors because it's not viewed as necessarily value added. And so it's sort of like we share the burden evenly. And then there may be other places where those opportunities are coveted and compensated for, built, built into the structure of, of how, how physicians get paid in either maybe a blended unit for non-clinical time. Um, so I, I think it, it very much, you know, in research, it's very straightforward. What is your grants and how is your time paid for? But in some of these broader areas, it's not quite so crystal clear. You know, there's a lot of talk now broader in, in the field of anesthesia, but largely even in medicine, right, about the move from fee-for-service to um, value-based care or pay-for-performance. That's sort of the systems level. I want, I want to hear kind of what is your understanding of kind of pay-for-performance or value-based care? When I think of pay-for-performance, I think of the fee-for-service model. Whatever you do is what you make. And so I think that was shown to be, it's not very effective. It's it ends up fostering a lot of greed, and I think it's developed what we have now is the accountable care, the bundled payments, where it's more value-based. So you work as a team, and you try to cut costs, and the costs you save, you can keep for the group, and you distribute evenly amongst the group. And I think that's been that's a more promising model, and so a model worth working for.
Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I think it's a model that may provide us as anesthesiologists with a unique opportunity in terms of what we can bring to the table, especially when we start talking about the bigger picture of adding value to a patient's uh, perioperative stay and perioperative experience. Um, as a specialty, as we're kind of expanding out of the OR, we're starting to expand more in the preoperative area, the postoperative area, even into these um, transitional pain clinic type settings. This, in a lot of ways, provides at least the opportunity for us to say, hey, these things that don't necessarily have clear reimbursement advantages, at least under the current system, may turn out to be uh, an important value added to the system once it's taken into account this sort of value-based reimbursement. So it's hard to predict what changes will be for uh, our benefit or not, but potentially it could be a good opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing in the group there are lots of opportunities, and in many respects, the system is changing because the old system had a lot of perverse incentives. But I'm curious to know, do you see any challenges in sort of this changing reimbursement model? You know, what, what are things that you may be worried about when you think about how, you know, the reimbursement models are moving away from fee-for-service? There's one problem. So when you try to... Uh, integrate horizontally and vertically amongst departments. It's hard to figure out who's in charge, and so it can lead to a lot of unnecessary bureaucracy. You don't know who's, whose decision is what, um, who's supposed to take responsibility for a certain patient or at a certain time. And I think uh, you'll need a lot more organization and discipline amongst different departments to be successful with such a, a larger a mo a payment model that incorporates a larger group of physicians. Yeah, I think too, anytime you sort of change the stage, you can sometimes inadvertently make a path for market disruptors that may not be in our best interest. Um, like I said, an opportunity to expand our practice and our value perioperatively may conversely be seen as an opportunity to cut costs with intraoperative care, whether that's uh, stretching us to more of a supervision model. Um, things like that, it's it's hard to predict, but definitely when we're looking at these kind of changes, it'll be on us to make sure we're evaluating how things are changing and uh, providing our systems with good value to show that uh, we are the answer for the system uh, as it changes. I think to that point, you know, there's been a lot of talk in our field and certainly at conferences in terms of MIPS and you know merit-based incentive payments and how do you actually demonstrate that you're achieving quality in very, very specific metrics. One of the concerns I have is the amount of data that you have to demonstrate to meet these measures. And you know we've all seen the value of checklists, but we've also seen kind of potentially checklist over, uh, overload, right? Um, you know, there are times where you have so many checklists that people are just going through the motion, right? And so there's a potential, I think, for some um, different perverse incentives to just achieve whatever metrics garner um, reimbursement, as opposed to a fundamental unified sort of quality improvement, you know, structure. You know, hearing you all talk about these things makes me realize just the, the larger forces that kind of are in control of, you know, some of these things or that play a role in, in all of these things. And it just makes me want to emphasize the importance of, one, being knowledgeable and, two, doing something about, about it. Like, if you are concerned, you know, those things that you addressed, um, of sharing it with someone that may be able to make the change, you know, being involved in advocacy or 
sharing with people just kind of what you see and how you think might be a solution. So it's very important. I think if there's one theme that's come out of here is the old way of practicing medicine, putting your head down and just practicing medicine no longer exists. For better, for worse, we do live in a system and a lot of these changes um, are going to affect us. And they already are affecting us in residency, whether we see it or not, but they certainly will be much more tangible once we're out in practice. I'm curious to know, are there specific things about payment that you wish you understood better? I know, Candice, you've kind of mentioned the importance in general of exploring these topics. I think for all of us, there are definitely growth opportunities or weak spots. Uh, I'm curious amongst us, you know, are there areas about payment that you want to delve deeper into or you wish you understood better? Personally, I, I wish I had a better understanding of um, insurance compensation and uh, exactly what goes into that process. I have a very limited knowledge of that um, so far. So, For me, it goes back to what I touched on earlier. I think just knowing um, how to get reimbursed while still providing the most uh, appropriate care for your patient you know if if your patient needs a, a post-op block for pain you know how, how do you provide that for them while, while still getting reimbursed for it and and not being a detriment you know I guess financially to your institution I know um, we've talked a lot about the base units and the time and the conversion factor I know one area that interests me that I still am a little fuzzy on is sort of the ancillary services and how they get reimbursed and understanding how to balance those with the cost of those ancillary services. Um, and, and just in general, I wish I knew better about how these decisions are made and what we can do to try to influence the decision to be more accurate to the value that uh, these services provide. And I think to give us all a little bit of credit, I think these are hard questions. You know, trying to understand how insurance companies um, establish contracts and where they reimburse and at what rates is incredibly challenging I think not just for us but for people who have been in the field for 20 plus years and it, it drives a lot of behavior too I mean I, I feel like I learned a lot from people out in practice who were talking about mergers or consolidating power to have leverage with insurance companies right and, and so it does affect us but it's hard um, so I want to know you know how do you think we can get mentorship here how, how do we start to tackle these questions this is, in some respects, kind of different from other topics in that it's very specific, right? I mean, w a lot of what we're talking about is very specific, and yet we have a lot of looming questions. And so how do you, how, if, if you don't know the answer, where do you turn? How do you get mentorship on understanding payments and reimbursements and financial questions? I think it's, it's tough in academic medicine because most academic institutions have a separate billing, coding, reimbursement department so it's not something that is handled by the physician yeah I agree I mean I'm in private practice and it's still not that relevant to me because I'm not doing billing so if it's not a problem of mine it's really an outside of my focus so I think as residents be aware we're like going to this conference and just sitting and learning listening but only until you're actually involved in it and you have the problems of billing and coding then you'll, you'll seek somebody who knows who can guide you. I think it would be interesting, I'm not sure if some residency programs offer this already, um, if perhaps during your CA3 year you could have a rotation or service where you rotate um, at a private practice and kind of understand it 
more insight into the billing and coding aspect of it because as you mentioned earlier it is a little different when in residency when it is an academic program there's a completely separate department we're kind of blinded from that whole process so uh, i know for me i uh one of the things i struggle with is i'm not very good at charting and because of that i've had some mistakes i've made that have been brought to my attention by the billing department and actually that has been a great experience for me going in and talking with the billing department at my institution because they know a lot and they have a lot of answers and I know for me talking with them has been really illuminating in terms of understanding how this all works so I know we met with one of our billing department folks and went through the acute pain billing process and it was really illuminating and frankly things that I'm not even sure uh, our attendings knew uh, in all that detail but there are people out there that know the answers they might just not be physicians Maybe if we all start charting wrong, we can learn from that. <laughs> I, I think, Jordan, that's a really excellent point. I, I went to a conference a couple years ago about quality improvement, and the most popular poster was one about the pre-anesthesia clinic and what codes you could bill for for services that you already do. If you think about that, it's not even like, how can we get better? How can we expand? It's just, how can we bill for things that we already do? And that, that was the most popular one, right? Because this issue of transparency and how you actually get the data is really hard. So I'm curious to know, I mean, that's a really, really valuable experience. I mean, do you think that's translatable? I mean, as I think about for the rest of us here, do you think you could go to your billing department? What type of reactions might you get if you wanted to learn more about this? I probably have to figure out where it is first. <laughs> I think for the most part, people are pretty open to sharing what they know. You know, something that they do every day, and if someone shows interest, then yeah, just carve out time and make time so that they can teach someone else. It usually open to that. It's worth a shot. Yeah. It's better than not trying. When I think to your point, Candice, too, if you have um, somebody who has some influence, also behind your back to support you in this, it may also help. I know at University of Washington, I mean, no matter what my experiences are, if I just knocked on the billing department, I don't think they would actually welcome me with open arms. But if I got, you know, somebody who's a little bit more senior to me that's a mentor who could, who has some influence, ask the same question, you know, we could as a team, you know, kind of start to extrapolate and make data-based decisions. So I think that also goes into mentorship and, um, you know, the data is there, right? If you ask for it, you may be able to get it. Going back to, to what you were saying about that poster in terms of showing what we're already doing, sometimes I feel like our specialty is so unique in that everything we do, we undo later. In the sense that when we get a patient, the expectation is when we're done with them, they look exactly the same as when we got them. And so that being the case, it takes a little extra effort to show what value we're adding and what we're doing and why that's important. And to that end, uh, our folks in the billing department are sort of advocates on our behalf saying, no, they did this and they did that and this is uh, how they should be compensated because that was an important value added to this patient's experience, even though at the end of the day, there's not going to be something concrete for the patient to show, hey, anesthesia did this because ideally they won't have anything to show. It'll be like we weren't there. Yeah. Well, I have an existential question about this. Some of our listeners around the country 
may be wondering why a group of doctors are here talking about money. Isn't it your job to just go take care of patients? So question to the group. I mean, how important is it as a physician to understand these money questions? And does it influence, for good or for bad, your clinical decision making? If you don't know what's going on, you're going to be taken advantage of. So I think regardless, you have to know what's going on. So whatever, whatever practice you're in, you have to know the billing part, the coding, or else someone's going to take advantage of you. I think in order to be able to provide for patients, you need to have an actual functioning practice um, that's able to run and stay afloat. And part of that is understanding um, the financial aspect of it. If you can't fund your practice or um, profit from it in any way to allow it to sustain, then you're not even going to be able to provide that patient care. I think sometimes, too, when we have these discussions, it can sound, if we're not careful, like we're trying to make the cost of healthcare higher. And the way I see it is, rather than that, it's just a matter of trying to make sure that whatever healthcare dollars we're spending as a nation gets distributed to the places that have the most value. And in order to do that, you have to, through billing, show what kind of value you're adding to the system. But I, I do think that, in the end, we're just trying to make sure that we have the resources that we need to effectively care for our patients. And in order to do that, we have to be able to show that we have value and get the revenue we need through the billing. I think those are all really good points. I, I would also say I think it is our responsibility to actually change some of the culture of medicine in this space. Because I think for a long time, this entire topic of payment, reimbursement, money has been just viewed as a necessary evil and something that's deprioritized. And as all of us have gone through the medical system, have realized that it actually is very fundamental. For better or for worse, it does influence behaviors. And so if you're not seeing it for what it is, you're actually not putting the focus on value for your patients, right? You're kind of putting your head down and just proceeding. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is it, the way to think about it in terms of value. How do you, you know, allocate resources effectively or, you know, how do you um, improve patient care broadly and how do you do it in a sustainable way, like you were saying, Nilob, in terms of a practice that actually works is, is a really important takeaway. So there's a lot of talk in the broader healthcare system in terms of the patient experience, or rather the consumer experience, right? That maybe healthcare is not so different from every other industry, and we have consumers, and it's the reason you know people want to go to Walgreens, right, to get their medical care. It's fast, it's convenient, it's easy, and that's why Amazon or Google will save the day, right? There's this tendency towards moving in that direction. So the question I have is, when you look at anesthesiology as a field, how important is it to promote your value and services, and what challenges do we face? The challenge that we face is that a lot of times people don't really know us. You know, we're expected to bring them back in the same condition that they arrived in, and they meet us for five minutes beforehand. They are asleep through the surgery. They go to the recovery room. They wake up and we're gone. You know, they, they don't really equate us with being their doctor or their physician because we don't have any relationship with them. And I think to that point, since it's hard for them to see the value we've added, 
it just highlights the importance of sort of the customer service aspect. In some ways, really, the only value that the patient will see if things go well will be how did we treat them preoperatively? How, were we kind? Did we help them feel less anxious? Did we follow up with them after surgery? In some ways, those things that we think about as being sort of ancillary to what we really do are the only things that our patients really experience and just highlights the importance that we do a good job with those. I think it's hard to have leverage as anesthesia, particularly because we don't have our own patient base. So you're a lot of times at the mercy of a surgeon or a GI doctor who has the patients, and so it's difficult to leverage ourselves. I think um, something that's also important is our own portrayal of ourselves. I think it's very easy to get mixed up in the sea of CRNAs or AAs, or um, especially when everyone is wearing the same scrubs, at least in my hospital, it's really hard to distinguish the differences. And so one of the things we can do, which I, I know my institution doesn't do at the moment, but we're trying to make it a thing is to start wearing our white coats more and kind of demonstrate that we're actually, we are physicians and that there is a difference between an anesthesiologist um, and a nurse anesthetist. Um, and I think we can demonstrate our own value by just showing that we are actually doctors and perhaps having people in the operating room refer to us as doctor, you know, so-and-so instead of by my first name, which I admit that I just become accustomed to because that's the way it goes. But nobody refers to the surgeon by their first name. Yeah, I think we have a unique challenge in our field, and I think it's also perpetuated because of some stereotypes, right? We've all seen that, the uh, anesthesiologist who plays Sudoku in the operating room and kind of ruins the reputation for everyone else. Um, I, I think in my practice now as a resident, some of the points, Neil, you said, I mean, I do introduce myself as Dr. Saxena, and I try to make it a point to say anesthesia is four things. It's analgesia, amnesia, muscle relaxation, loss of consciousness, you know, in a more clear way, and that my job is to actually do these things in the entire case that is a very unnatural state for the patient, and I'm supporting your blood pressure, and I'm breathing for you, and I'm doing all of these active things to keep you safe. So not to scare them, but to reiterate in those few minutes, like what are we actually doing for them? And it, we do, I think, have a responsibility to carry our field with that sort of reputation and demonstrate our value. So just to close, we talked a lot about finance and systems, but at the end of the day, we each are individuals and we will have our own, one day, hopefully, a bigger salary than our resident salary. So any advice for other residents in terms of how to manage your personal finance or how to apply some of these techniques in your own life? A good place to start is just kind of drawing out your own budget. You know, where you're at, where you want to be, kind of what goals you personally have. And I feel like, you know, writing things down and reevaluating can go a long ways. I've had advice of, you know, living like a resident for a few years even after you start making more money. And that way you kind of have better financial health. There's multiple other aspects we could touch on as far as debt management or investing and insurance, you know, disability and those kinds of things. Um, but I think the best place to start is just get an idea of where you're at and where you want to go. Yeah, I would just echo what Candace said. We may not have the money now, but we have the resources and we should make the time to make the plan now so that when we get that paycheck that we're all dreaming of, we don't give into what will 
no doubt be our first thought, which is to buy a new car or do something like that. Uh, if we make the plan now while we're living like residents, it's going to be a lot easier than trying to play catch up later in our careers when we, <laughs> we're having to cut back because we haven't prepared. I think it's important to start early. A lot of medical schools offer um, free services in your fourth year with a, like a financial loan officer um, session. Just one session can help kind of help you, you know, understand how repayment works. Um, and so I think the earlier on understanding that can help you later on in the future. Yeah, just kind of picking, backing off that, you know, compound interest is your friend. So even if it doesn't seem like you're saving much now, every little bit is, is going to multiply. Awesome. So I've learned a lot. I hope you have learned a lot too. And this is, I think, a really nice avenue for us to share ideas. We talked a lot in terms of how an anesthesiologist gets paid, how practices make money, what are the setups for practices, how do you think about the larger legislative and kind of bigger systems and how they affect your microsystems and local systems and then we also kind of talked about personal finance and how to apply these in our personal life so i think we we covered a lot it's been a pleasure to be your host i'm rajiv this has been residents in a room the asa podcast by residents for residents I'd like to thank our colleagues and have a good night tuning out From hiring and compensation to technology and leadership, the One Day Resident Program at the Practice Management Conference covers all your questions about the business side of anesthesia. See more at asahq.org slash practice management. Join us for Residents in a Room, where we'll share timely info, advice, and resources designed to help residents succeed in residency and beyond. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit asahq.org slash podcasts for more.